What's up, H12? How you guys doing tonight? Well, listen, I am so, so excited about the conversation we're about to have. And the conversation we're about to have is something that God's been laying on my heart over the last couple months and uh, something that I've been looking forward to and building up to have this conversation with you today and been thinking about it for a long time. And, um, and this is going to be a little bit more of a living room conversation than necessarily like a sermon like would normally get, but, uh, uh, but I want you to focus in. I think that what I'm going to talk to you about tonight is the biggest struggle, the biggest struggle that we face as Christians and one of the biggest struggles that people who are not followers of God, not followers of Jesus, or are trying to figure this thing out, some of the biggest struggles for them. And so I want us to dive in. We've been looking at the, the story of David. If you got your Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 23. And uh, we talked about David and Goliath. And then we talked about this big failure that David had with David and Bathsheba, where he cheats. Uh, uh, he, he actually takes another man's wife, sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He tries to cover it up by killing the guy. And, uh, and you know, David done some pretty, pretty rough stuff in his life. And, um, and then we see last week uh, when uh, Trey was speaking, he was talking about how Nathan came, the prophet of God confronted David, and, uh, and tonight we're going to talk a little bit about David and God, David and his relationship with God, and I want to show you something from his relationship with God that I think applies to all of us, and you're going to be challenged, so get ready. Y'all ready? Yeah. All right, we're going to get after it. We're going to jump right into the scripture. If you got it, Psalm 23, and uh, it'll be up here on the, on the screens if, uh, if you need it up there as well. Here we go. It says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Notice the security that he has with, with his relationship with God. He, he lacks nothing because God is his everything. Then he goes on, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet water. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the paths for his name's sake. Notice the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is God's control in his life, God's authority in his life, God's sovereignty and power over his life. And then he says this, even though I walk through the, through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice this, your and you. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to notice in this passage, every single line, I about fell on my face. Every single line in this passage locks in on this truth that David has this deep connection, this deep relationship with God, and that it is God as the one who's leading, God is the one who is guiding, and God is the one who he's submitting his life to. And even as the first week as we looked at David and Goliath, we see, we see the picture of David as a young boy following God even before he ever killed Goliath. And then we see him uh, saying to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And, and we see him standing for God in that moment and everything in his life from his past, his past relationship with God is built into this. And listen, this is so cool. We see that even in David's faults, David runs to God. He cries out to God. Even after David is confronted by Nathan, he, he runs after God. He confesses his sins. He says, I have sinned before God and he begs God for his forgiveness and God gives him his forgiveness. 
We see this deepness, this security in his relationship with God. And I think, I think there's something that I see in this passage that, about David that I think should be true of us. He knew who he was because he knew whose he was. And I think for us as believers, we know who we are because we know whose we are. See, if you know that God has you, that God has your back, that he's leading your life, that he's on your side, then, and you know he has you, man, you are unstoppable. And David knew this. David knew that God was walking with him. And we see this, that, David, that God loved David no matter what, that even in the midst of David's failures, even in the midst of David's biggest blow-ups, God was right there in the mix pursuing him. See, God could have written David off when he committed adultery against Uriah's wife and sent Uriah out to be killed. And God could have said, you know what? That's not a guy that I want to pursue. That's not a guy that I want to love. That's not a guy that I want to have a relationship with. But we see God telling Nathan to go to David. God continues to pursue David even in the midst of his screw-ups and his messes. And I think this is true. I think for many of us in this room, the core of the difficulty that we have in following God has to do with the way that we think we are performing before God. That God loves me as long as I am doing these things. God is there for me as long as I'm not failing. And then when we fall, then when we have a misstep, then when we have a failure like David had, we think God is distant, God has left us, God is away from us. There's no way God can forgive me. And after a while of feeling this guilt and feeling this pressure and feeling this in our lives, we end up just getting discouraged by our faith and we end up walking away and we end up not wanting anything to do with church or God or anything like that in our life. I got a little girl, if you're new with us, you don't know that. If you are, you know that I talk about her often because I love her. I never want to stop talking about my girl and my wife and about Jesus because they are the three most important things in my life. And my little girl's named Abby. And Abby's in this cool little stage right now. She's in the I copy everything daddy does stage. And so like what I'll do is like we'll be at the house and I'll go, and she goes, and she laughs at the end of it every time. So it's like this. <laughs> and I love the little hee-hee. <laughs> so I keep doing it, right? And, and Megan will come downstairs, my wife, and she's like, oh, she's spitting everywhere. Stop treating her, teaching her those bad things. And I'll be like, hey, Megan. And I'll go. And Abby will go. And then, and then, and then, she'll, and then, and then she'll do all these different things. And, then, and, then one, and, and another thing she'll do is like, like I'll stick my tongue out. She'll stick her tongue out back at me. And, uh, and uh, anyways, my wife took a picture of us uh, uh, sticking our tongue out. I'm sticking my tongue out her. She sticks her tongue out at me. She copies me. Today, I'm eating a cup of noodles at the house, you know, and the water's hot. And so, like, I got the fork, and I'm, I'm like, blowing on the noodles. And I, like, get, you know, I go and eat it. And Abby's sitting there eating beside me uh, at the table. And, um, and, and uh, so I pick up, I have some noodles in my hand, and I, and I'm blowing on it on the fork like that. And so she's, she's looking at me, and she looks down, and she picks up a grape, and she goes, and she puts it in her mouth, and I'm like, yeah, that's my girl. And, uh, and, and, and I love my daughter. And what I found is, is that I am obsessed with my daughter's development, like completely obsessed with it. 
And I think that all parents want to think that their kid is better than all the other kids. Like I want my kid to be more advanced and to dominate every other kid her age, you know? And so I'm talking to this pastor a couple weeks ago and he's telling me about his daughter and his daughter's a couple months older than Abby and Abby is doing things that his daughter is still not doing. And I'm like, yeah, that's right, come on girl. High five, you know what I'm saying? Like that's my girl right there, you know? And like I'm all proud as a dad that my daughter's doing all this kind of stuff. And then a couple weeks ago, I'm walking through the church on a Sunday morning it's during a service and so no one's out in the hall in the lobby and there's this lady out there and she's got this little this little boy and, and he's really small and he's like crawling around and I go over to her and I'm like I'm like oh man your kid's so cute how old is he and and she's like she's like oh he's he's six months and I'm like oh six months wow he's already crawling like my daughter was nine months when she started crawling that's amazing like that and she goes oh yeah and she walks over and she picks him up and puts him on his feet and this little six month old starts walking Yes, that's what I said. Prodigy kid, right? And this little six-month-old starts walking, and I'm like, man, I'm like, holy cow, like my daughter's a year old and she's not walking, and I could see the pride just welling up in her eyes, like my kid's better than yours, you know what I'm saying? And so then I started thinking, man, maybe my daughter's behind. Like maybe, maybe she's like, she's like, like her development's messed up, and I'm like, you know, and I'm all worried. I'm like, and then I get home and I'm looking at Abby, and I'm like, girl, you gotta step up your game, girl. Come on. You know, no, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. And uh, but I'm like all concerned about it, and then I just kind of felt like God's little still small voice kind of creep in and he says, Derek, stop comparing your daughter to other kids. I don't compare my kids. It's not about her performance. I love my children because they are my children. And I started thinking about that and I was like, man, if Abby never walks a day in her entire life, it will never change how much I love for her, my love for her. It will never change how much I adore her because my love for Abby is not contingent upon her performance towards me. And students, let me tell you something. God's love for you is not contingent upon your performance for him. See, we live in a performance-based culture, a performance-based society that it's all about climbing to the top. It's all about being the winner. And we hide behind this performance-based ideology with this idea where we just say, well, I'm just competitive. That's our way to kind of get around. I'm just competitive. I just want to win. And we all have this competitive spirit in us. And we want this. We want to perform well. We want to do this. And so, and so we, what we do is we try to pile all these things in our life. And so, so we, we pile a, a workload of, in school on our life. And we pile a job on our life. And we want to be involved in more service projects, involved in more clubs, involved in more, more hobbies, involved, involved in more school activities, involved in more sports. And we get involved in more and more of this stuff. And what happens is when you're in a performance-based society and you feel like you have to perform because what happens is in that when we build our identity, our value, and our worth around how we're performing, that we have to do all these things, that our life becomes incredibly busy. And that's the reason when I talk to most students every single week when we have conversation, I say, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, I'm just busy. Just busy. Things are just busy right now. Hey, I haven't seen you at age 12 in a while. Things are busy. I got work, I got school, I got, I got a job, I got, I got this, I got that, I got school, I got, I got, a, a, I got a sports that I'm doing, I got this, I got, I'm just busy, everything's just busy. 
And busyness begins to control our life. And because we feel this pressure to perform, anxiety begins to build up in us. Did you know that studies show that the average high school student has the same levels of anxiety as the average 1950s psychiatric patient? Let me say that again. The average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. There is a pressure to perform in our society, a pressure to perform in order to, to, to become something. And we find our value and worth in this. And this is what happens. It carries over into our adult lives. And so it's all about getting a good job so we can make good money so that, so that we can live in a good neighborhood and send our kids to good schools and, 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 and have the social status and to retire by a certain age. And it's all about performance. And performance drives us. In fact, it even drives the motives on the thing, even drives the motives behind some of the things that we don't even realize. Like, for example, why do you want to get good grades and why do your parents want you to get good grades? So you can get into a good what? Why do you want to get into a good college so you can have a good what? Good job. Why do you want to have a good job so you can make lots of what? Why do you want to make lots of money so you can be happy and live happily ever after, right? For my family, so your family can live happily ever after. And the motives, the motives behind this we think are good, but the truth is, is that it's all about us trying to perform. And so then what happens is when we don't measure up to that, we have unmet expectations, we get disappointed, we get sad, we get depressed, we get frustrated. And that's why when students sit in my office and they are sad, frustrated, depressed, this is why. They feel like they can't measure up. They feel like they can't, they can't do what they feel like they need to do in order to be accepted to, accepted to find their value and worth. And I think that in America, it's worse than anywhere else in the world. It's just in our culture. I was talking with one of our adult leaders from Mountain View, guys. His name's Pierre. He's here tonight. And uh, Pierre's the man. Pierre's been living in the United States for, uh, yeah, give it up for Pierre. Pierre's... <laughs> Pierre, Pierre's been living in the United States for, uh, you know, uh, less than a year, and uh, he's from Germany, and, uh, and, and Pierre, Pierre is a stud. Pierre is, uh, oversees the marketing for a global company. They have offices in, like, Beijing, Tel Aviv, Paris, Germany, uh, you know, you, the U.S., I mean, you name it, all over the place his company is, and so he, he has offices in all these different places, and, um, and, and Pierre... And Pierre was telling me, man, I've never seen a place that's so performance-obsessed. Performance he said, literally, my kids and all of his kids are like young kids, like young, like elementary school age and younger kids. He says, all, my kids, every single day, get evaluated on their performance. They come home with stars, whether it's four stars, three stars, two stars, one star, based on their performance. And he says, in every single day, we are teaching our kids that you have to perform in order to matter. I thought, wow, that's powerful. He said, in Germany, they do not even give out grades until you're in the fourth grade. Because they see that as a time of development. Now, I know what you're thinking. 
That's why we're smarter than the Germans. America. And if you're thinking that, you would be wrong. The Germans beat us in every single academic category there are. There is. See, I can't even speak English. And that's my first language. Germany ranks 12th in the world in math. The United States ranks 35th. 23 nations ahead of us. Germany ranks in the top 10 in science. We rank 27th. Every academic category they dominate us in. And I know what you're thinking. We got to do something about it. We got to perform. We can't let the Germans beat us. And that might, USA. <laughs> Sorry, Pierre, you might want to leave early tonight. And, uh, but, uh, but I think maybe that's the very mentality that's got us in the situation that we're in. That we feel like we have to perform in order to measure up. There's a pastor in Florida, his name's uh, Tully and Tavishan. And uh, he's actually the, the, uh, the grandson um, of, uh, of uh, Billy Graham who is uh, one of the greatest men of God and preachers of the last uh, century. And he says this. We're going to put it on the screens for you. He says this. In talking about performancism in our culture, he says, performancism is the mindset that equates our identity and value based on how we are performing, what we are doing, and who we are becoming, and what we are accomplishing. It focuses on how I look, how intelligent I am, how my kids turn out, etc. We begin to think that what people think of me is synonymous with my worth. So in a world of performancism, success equals life and failure equals death. You say, why aren't we having this conversation? This is why. Because this mentality that we have bleeds into our spiritual life as well. This performancism mentality bleeds into our spiritual life. And so we begin to look at our relationship with God the same way that we look at everything else in our culture. It's all about performance. I wrote this down. So we start, we start thinking about it this way. Am I performing well enough? Am I disappointing God? Have I done enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I served enough, etc.? And what we do is we attach God's love for us to the way that we perform for, for him. We attach the way that God loves us to the way that we perform for him. And as long as I'm performing for him, he loves me. But if I'm not, well, the moment that I mess up, then he no longer loves me anymore. And that is so counter to the gospel. That is so counter to the message of the Bible. That is so counter to the message of Jesus. This is why for the first five to six years of being a Christian, my Christian life felt like it was defeated 100% of the time because I never thought I could be good enough. I never thought that I could measure up. I never thought that, that God could love me the way that I was being, even though I knew that I was a Christian and a believer. I never understood the freedom that actually comes from having a relationship with Christ. And let me tell you something, that freedom tastes so sweet when you understand it and you get it. Tullian goes on to say this. He says, my observation of Christendom 
is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. And if we haven't done so well, we, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life is basically up to us, our commitment, our discipline, our zeal, with some help from God along the way. The realization that my daily relationship with God is based based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of on my own performance is a very freeing and joyous experience. But it is not to be a one-time experience. The truth needs to be reaffirmed daily. In other words, he's saying this is something that we need to consider and think about David. This is what I believe. When you look at David's life, this is what David did. Every single day, David woke up knowing that no matter what he has done in his life, that his God loves him unconditionally, that his grace is for him, that, he, that God is for him and not against him, that God is not waiting for him to mess up so he can smash him. Man, that is so free. In fact, I want to go back to the first, the first uh, line of this, of this, uh, this last quote he, he, that I just read. He says, my observation of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. The message of the Bible is about God's grace. It is about us as sinful man. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. There's no one righteous, not even one. I don't have to convince you of that. We've all lied before. We've all done things that we're not proud of before. We've all lusted. We've all hated. We've all done those things. And the truth is that is just evidence that we have sin in our life and that that can't be before a holy God. And God basically is saying, listen, it's not about your performance that earns who I am. This was the problem with the early church. This is what the early church did. Jesus steps on the scene and flips this upside down. The religious leaders of this day were like, you have to do this. They even took the law of the Sabbath and they made, they made tons of other laws around the Sabbath. They're like, well, you can't travel but this far. And, well, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't pick grain and you can't do this. And they made all of these different laws around the law of God because they wanted people to follow a set of rules. It wasn't about a relationship, but it was about rules. Churches do this all the time. Jesus steps on the scene and he's like, no, it's not. It's not about rules. It is about the gift that God gives you. It is not about you earning God's love. It is about God giving you his love. And and Jesus goes and he dies on the cross. And then the church begins and there's this major battle in the church. See, the Jewish believers, the new Jewish converts, the people of God before, and the new Jewish converts to Christianity, they start making the Gentile converts follow the law. And they start making the Gentile men get circumcised because that's what Abraham was commanded to do. And they start adding all these rules in the church. And in Acts chapter 10, we see uh, God come in, in a vision to Peter and lay out some stuff to Peter. In Acts chapter 11, Peter comes and he says, listen, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You need Jesus in order to be saved. That it is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is the message of scripture. It is grace. I shared this story over Dig. I was I had a couple friends, a couple friends I was hanging out with uh, last year, 
and we were having this conversation about uh, about uh, you know parenting because I have a little girl and and this guy has a couple little girls and I just said hey man he's a pastor I said hey man tell me tell me how you teach your your daughters grace how do you teach them grace like how will I teach my kids these spiritual truths he says I'll tell you how I teach my daughter grace here would be an example two weeks ago he says one of my daughters had done something horrific. She screwed up in a big way. She's like six years old. She screwed up in a big way. And then she backtalked her mom and, and, and she said some mean things to her mom and she was being really mean and disobedient to her mom and her mom called me and said, and mom called me and said, listen, you've got to come home and deal with her. She is out of control. He says, so I come home. I walk in the door. I go upstairs. I walk into her room and she's sitting on her bed and she's crying. And she says, Daddy, give me mercy. He says, I was going up to her room to give her a spanking, and she's there on the bed saying, Daddy, give me mercy. Daddy, give me mercy. And he says, follow me. She says, what? He says, follow me. He goes downstairs, and he says, get in the car. She gets in the car, and he, he drives on the road, and he pulls into her favorite ice cream store. And he says, get out of the car. And she's like, what do you like? What's going on? And he's like, get out of the car. And she gets out of the car, and, and they go in the ice cream store. And he looks at his little girl and he says, You can get as much ice cream as you want and as many toppings as you want. Put as much ice cream as you want and get as many toppings as you want. She's like, Really, Dad? And he's like, Yes. He said she goes and she, she does that. She piles the ice cream on and she piles the toppings on and, and, she's, and, and he pays for it and she sits down at the table and he sits across from her and she's eating this ice cream. She's got a big smile on her face. And she says, Dad, why did you buy me ice cream? And he says, he says mercy is not giving you a spanking when you deserve one. That's what God does. God doesn't give us hell, though we deserve it. Mer Grace is giving you ice cream when you deserve a spanking. Grace means receiving something that you do not deserve. That it is not just that God withholds his punishment, but that also God gives you a gift. And God gives us as believers the gift of eternal life. That when you give your life to Christ, you are now placed under Christ. You are now a part of the family of God. You are now his child. And he desires good things for you. He gives you grace. He gives you reward. That is what he does for you as his child, as his children. And you have to get that. This is what sets apart Christianity from every religion in the world. Every religion in the world is all about doing in order to earn the favor of God or, or, or whatever that belief system believes. And Christianity is all about it is finished. It is done. Every religion in the world is about doing. Christianity is about it is done. It is finished. That Jesus came and he died on the cross and it is finished. It's not about you earning God's favor. It is about him giving it to you. And this is hard for us. It's hard for us to get this in our culture because we live in a culture that is built around the karma system. 
And karma basically is like eye for an eye. Karma is basically like, you know, if you do something bad, then something bad's going to happen to you. You do something good, something good's going to happen to you. And we bring this into our relationships with each other. And so, and so we, we say things like, well, I'll do good for you if you do good, do good for me. I promise to do this for you if you promise to do this for me. If you don't cross me, I won't cross you. And we kind of have this going in our relationships with one another. And what happens is, is that our relationships become conditional with each other. As long as you don't cross me, I'm not going to cross you. As long as you treat me with respect, I'll treat you with respect, and our relationships become conditional. And then what happens is we pull that into our relationship with God, and we say, well, God, if I'm not performing well enough, if I'm not doing these things, then there's no possible way that you could then love me back in the same way because that's not how our system works. That's not how we look at things. And God says, no, 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 it's grace. It's grace. I love you. Because you are my child. I love you because you are my child. I mentioned Tully and being Billy Graham's grandson. Billy Graham is the, Billy Graham is the, I mean, the guy's amazing. I've been to the Billy Graham library, and, and this guy has preached in front of over a million people at one time. I mean, that's amazing. Millions of people have given their lives to Jesus because of the ministry of Billy Graham. He's one of the most humble, amazing, godly men that has walked the face of this planet and is walking the face of this planet today. He's in his 90s now. Or I think of people like Mother Teresa who have sacrificially given up their lives to go serve people for the cause of Christ. And I think about people like that, people that we read about, people we think about. And this is why grace seems so, so counterintuitive to us. My phone is going off like I'm mad. This is why grace seems so counterintuitive to us. Because we operate on the karma system, when I talk to people who are non-believers, people who are far from God, they're like, I don't understand how Jesus as a sinless man, as a good man, as a, would die for sinful people. It makes no sense, and it doesn't make sense. It's absurd. It's the scandal of grace. It's why grace doesn't make sense to so many people. It doesn't make sense to so many people because it doesn't make sense that a sinless man would die for sinful people. It would be like if there was a serial rapist and murderer who was on death row, and he was walking down to be strapped into the electric chair, and when he got to the electric chair, Billy Graham was standing there, and he says, hey, listen. I know you deserve this, but I'm actually going to get in here and I'm going to die in your place. And I'm not just going to die in your place so that you can go back to your cell and be in your cell for the rest of your life, but I'm going to die in your place so that you'll be released and set free to enjoy life however you wish to. We would say that is completely absurd. Billy Graham, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Like, you are a good man. Why would you do that? That makes no sense. Not, and Jesus was the perfect man. And Jesus didn't just die for one person's sin. He died for all sin and all people's sin. Even Billy Graham's sin. And I think that's why sometimes we don't understand the weight of his grace, the weight of his love for us, and the power of the gift of that love for us. So I'm going to wrap it up with this. Jesus didn't come just to save you, but he came to give you life. 
And when I look around at most Christians, it doesn't seem like they're living life to the full like we talk about all the time. And I think that some of it is because we don't feel like we are performing well enough. Man, if I could just do a little more. If I was to do an anonymous survey and say, how many of you would say that, man, your relationship with God right now is rocking? Some of you would say good, maybe because you were at Dig this weekend and some because you, you've just got it. But, but most of you say, man, I'm just, just not sure if it's rocking right now. And I want you to know this, and I want you to believe this. Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. And in a performance-driven world, if there is one place where you should feel freedom, it should be at the feet of Jesus, and it should be at church. I hope you never come here and feel like we are piling up a bunch of stuff on your life for you to do in order for you for you to perform for God. Because God loves you, regardless of your performance. And if you have distanced yourself from God, it has not changed his love for you. Listen to me, if you have distanced yourself from God, it has not changed God's love for you. Just like it did not change God's love for David when he distanced himself from God. And just like no matter what my daughter does in her life, it will never change how much I love her. Why? Because she's my daughter. She's my child. And as a follower of Jesus, you are his child. And I want to close out this service. I want to read a scripture to you. I'm going to band come up. I want to read this scripture to you. I was going to read this at the beginning. I thought, you know what? After this conversation, this scripture will make a whole lot more sense. So check this out. This is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to drop down to verse 31 through 39. Let's read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the gift. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous, not because of what you do, but because he sees you that way. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now the next passage. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. In other words, if you feel condemned, it is not from anyone else. It is not from God. He goes on and says, Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long and we are considered as sheep uh, to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, listen to this, this is the core of it. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the truth. Here's the core of Romans, Romans 8. There's three parts that are the core. The first is this, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second one is this, you are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And the third is this, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the truth. In a culture that per, that promotes performancism as a way to be to have value and worth and identity, Christ comes, God comes, and through his word shares with us that he loves us and that our identity and worth and value should be found in him. And regardless of how we perform, he loves us anyway because he loves his children. That's freedom. That is freedom. And so here's the deal. I think there's two responses to a conversation like this. For some of you, it is this. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. Maybe you've been a Christian for a short time. You're a follower of Jesus. And you felt some of the things I've talked about tonight. Man, I don't measure up. I don't add up. I'm not performing. And tonight this message was freedom. But it's much more easy to listen to a message like this than it is to live a message like this. And I want to challenge all of you to go and read Romans 8. Memorize some of those scriptures in there. Meditate on them. That nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear this. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying that accomplishment and doing thing, big things is a, is a bad thing. And I'm not saying that the Bible says that those are bad things. But what I am saying is when that becomes the only thing and that leads into your spiritual life and it becomes the thing in your spiritual life versus the grace and freedom that comes through Christ. And for others of you, maybe there's some people in there, in here that, that you would say, you know what, like, I don't know that freedom you're talking about and I've never fully given my life to Christ. I've never surrendered my life to him. I maybe have been around church most of my life or maybe you've never been to church in your entire life. And you would just say, you know what? That get ice cream, God gives us ice cream when we deserve a spanking thing really resonated with me. I never truly understood grace. In fact, my idea of the church was that you had to do all these things and it was all about following rules and it was all about doing good. And I never realized that it was about the fact that God loves us and he pursues us because he sees us as his children. And here's the truth. I'm sinful, you're sinful, we're all sinful, and we're all in need of a savior. And tonight, you need to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus. 
as many have already done in this room. At Dig this weekend, we had about 30 students give their life to Christ. Amazing, amazing weekend. And I believe there may be some people in here tonight that need to do that tonight. Is this what I want to do? If that's you, I just want you just to say something simple, prayer to God. It may sound something like this. You can pray this with me at your seat. You don't have to repeat it. It's all about your heart. It's not about what you say. It's not about your words. But God, I just, God, I just want to surrender my life to you. I thank you that you give me the gift of salvation, even though it's something that I don't deserve because of my sin. And God, I know that I need to trust in you. I need to rest in you. Lord, would you save me? Would you change me? In Jesus' name, amen. And if you're in here, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're in here and you say, man, I'm, I am, uh, I'm a believer, but man, this message really spoke to me tonight on this performancism thing. And man, I, I just feel like uh, I need to tap into more of that freedom. And you just want somebody to pray for you that it wouldn't just be a message for you, but something you live out. That's you, man. I just, just, just slip your hand up, put it back down real quick. I'm gonna pray for you right now. Awesome. Hands up everywhere. Anybody else? Awesome. So God, I want to pray over these students that are in this room that just raise their hand and adults. I just ask God that you would just pour out your grace upon them. God, that they would just know that, that your love for them is unquenchable, that they are your children, those that follow you, that they are more than conquerors, that there's no condemnation, and that they would claim that in Jesus' name.